0: If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm 73, the 73rd Psalm, and there are gentlemen in the aisles who have Bibles if for some reason you don't have one. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you today, uh, they'd like to get one into your hands, so just grab, get their attention. That Bible is marked at Psalm 73, so you don't even have to look for it. We've got it, got it there for you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word And so you can feel free to keep that uh, after the service. Psalm chapter 73. We will read Psalm 73 in its entirety in a few minutes. Many of us, many of you have probably heard of the book When Bad Things Happen to Good People. When Bad Things Happen to Good People was written, I believe, in the late 70s by a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner. Kushner wrote this book as he faced extreme tragedy in his own life. He had a child that became very ill, was diagnosed uh, with a disease that eventually would take that child's life in his early early teen years. And Kushner wrote that book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, as his way of grappling with the question of why it is that relatively innocent people, a a child that that becomes ill at age three? Why is it that relatively innocent people suffer? This morning, though, I'd like us to flip that question around because that's what our scripture passage does. The question that I want us to ask this morning is why do good things happen to bad people? That's what Psalm 73 is about. Why do good things happen to bad people? we're told from our childhood that cheaters never prosper. And even many of your friends and family might, might forego doing something, and when they give you the reason for why they're not going to do it, they might say that it's bad karma. I don't want to get bad karma. I don't want to put something out into the universe that is going to come back to me. And so I've had people say that to me. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to do this, but I don't want it to come back on me. Most of us have a shared understanding that's somewhat inherent to us that crime isn't supposed to pay, that cheaters aren't supposed to prosper, and that nice guys are supposed to finish first. But as we grow older, we get more cynical because life happens. And cheaters do seem to prosper. And for some people, crime certainly does seem to be paying. And many of us can echo that old country song that Tennessee Ernie Ford used to sing about working in the coal mine. You load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. You work hard all your life and all you do is get old and more in debt. And there's people that don't seem to be working very hard and that they seem to be skating through life. All of us, at one time or another, struggle with the reality that actually a lot of great things are happening to very bad people. So there are Wall Street fat cats getting rich off of various schemes to fleece their investors. There are... Companies becoming rich, selling products that are built on the backs of horrible working conditions in other countries and even child labor. There are media moguls always looking for their next opportunity to take the latest Disney darling and pimp her out to be a pop singer to the ruin of her life and the ruining of the life of her followers. And they seem to be living quite well. Their bank account is probably better than yours. They're probably driving a nicer car than you are. They don't seem to have the problems that we have. It's like everywhere you turn, the wicked are prospering, and that karma boomerang just isn't coming back around. And for Christians, I think we find it all the more harder because that we expect it will go differently for us because we're followers of Jesus. Being a Christian, if you've tried to do it for any length of time, is hard. It's difficult. It's great, but it's a fight. Pushing down the desires of the sin nature does not come easily, it comes at great cost. Putting the sin in our hearts to death is very difficult. And all of us have experienced the frustration of following the rules, of trying to be free from sin, of trying to do what God expects of us, and yet it doesn't seem like there's any payoff. We aren't getting in a- ahead. And so we ask ourselves this question. I'm investing all this time and in energy into doing the right thing, and what do I get for all my hard work? I'm still struggling to get by. I lost my job at age 50, and now I'm having to find a completely new career in a field that I'm not familiar with. My car broke down, and I just went into debt to fix it. Every time I get some money saved up, I lose it. My spouse is sick and can't be the companion to me that I thought they were going to be. My retirement isn't what I thought it was going to be, and my lifestyle and the things that I thought I was going to enjoy in my older years aren't there like I expected them to be. There are all kinds of things that make it seem like maybe there isn't a payoff for following Jesus. Maybe it's not worth it, because the people who aren't following Jesus seem to have it on cruise control through life. And you've been trying to live righteously, and the only thanks you get is an astronomical hospital bill that the insurance company, surprise, isn't going to cover. What's the point of being a God follower if it ends up making no difference? What's the point of being a God follower if it doesn't improve my situation? What's the point of being a God follower if God isn't changing the situations that I'm facing right now when I look across the hedge and my neighbor seems to just be going straight through with no issues at all? That's what our psalm deals with. The Bible deals with real issues that we face in life, and it deals with them in an unvarnished way. And I'd like to read Psalm 73 with you this morning. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Word of God says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. The author of this psalm, Asaph, you can see at the beginning, looks at all people in the earth in one of two categories. He simplifies things and looks at people in two categories. There are those who are the righteous and there are those who are the wicked. The righteous are those who live their lives with a God consciousness. They fear God and thus their lives reflect that fear of God and they try to walk in God's ways. The wicked are those who live apart from the fear of the Lord. Those who live without a God consciousness and thus their lives reflect that. They do not follow his ways. They live thinking that they are not under the gaze of an all-seeing God, either denying his very existence or living as if he was unaware or uninterested. In other words, they are living for themselves. And so speaking broadly, this category of the wicked isn't relegated just to axe murderers. It's regular people who live life as if God was blissfully unaware of their actions. They live their lives as if they will never have to give an account for the way that they act. And what does the psalmist see when he looks at this category of people who live without a thought for God? Well, he confesses at the beginning that he envies the arrogant when he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Why are they arrogant? They are arrogant because they're looking around and they're seeing that they are without a care and they're seeing that they have wealth and they're saying, see, I'm getting through. I don't have to answer for the things that I'm doing and most certainly I don't have to answer to God. It's arrogance, it's pride. And the psalmist and perhaps you have looked at those people before and envy them. Because it seems like all the work that you're doing to follow God is in vain. What does he say about them? You can see in verse 4 he says they have no struggles. And their bodies are healthy and strong. They seem to be in fine health. They're free from common human burdens. The things that plague humanity that don't seem to touch them. They act wickedly. They oppress others. They gain a following. They speak with authority and people look at their lives and see it must be okay to follow them. They're successful. And they ask that question, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And so he summarizes in verse 12 his thoughts about his envy of the wicked when he says this, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And It makes him regret for a few moments the fact that he has tried to keep his heart pure, He talks about washing his hands in innocence, which is just a way of basically saying, I've tried to keep my nose clean. I've tried to do the stuff I'm supposed to do, and it appears that I have done it in vain. And no doubt he's speaking in hyperbole here, but he says in verse 14, All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. Have you ever thought that? You can almost paraphrase it this way. Living for God is pointless. Each new day is a fresh opportunity for God to kick me while I'm down. The envy in his heart had its effects. Because he says in verses 21 and 22, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. This bitterness that had welled up in his heart, this envy of the success of the wicked, caused him to be nothing but an animal. And the thing that we need to see this morning is that that bitterness in the heart creates blindness in our eyes. When you start looking around, and when you start measuring things in the here and now, and you see the prosperity of people who aren't seeking after God when you are trying to do that, the Bible doesn't tell you, pretend that it isn't there. The Bible doesn't tell you it's an illusion. The Bible tells you that, it's, that, that you can really see it and that it's really happening. But you can't take that to bitterness because bitterness causes blindness and you're not able to see the big picture. So what is it that happens to change the psalmist's experience? What is it that gets his focus off of envying the arrogant? What is it that helps him to see with new eyes? What helps him to remove the bitterness that's in his heart? We can see that in verses 15 to 17. He says, "'If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children.'" When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary is a place of worship. The sanctuary is a place where God dwells. And so when he goes to the sanctuary, we don't know what happens. Perhaps he caught the same kind of vision that Isaiah caught when he was in the sanctuary and he saw that magnificent picture of God and the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. Maybe it was a moment of meditation on the character of God when he was in the sanctuary. But we can say what one writer, as one writer put it, overwhelmed by the greatness glory and majesty of god the psalmist regained a proper perspective of his situation what fixed his perspective was a proper view of god a skewed perspective is a symbol and a symptom of misdirected worship so the answer to the psalmist's problems when he envies the arrogant and the answer to our problems when we see the prosperity of those who do not follow God is worship. Worship is the answer. Because the problem is that we are worshiping the wrong things. And that sh- those experiences of, seeing the, of, of envy point a spotlight onto our hearts and reveal that to us. The way that we respond to the prosperity of the wicked says a lot about who and what we worship. The problem when we see the prosperity of the wicked is not that there is no equity in the universe. The problem is not, as one Huffington Post writer put it in an article earlier this year, simply a problem of consciousness This writer was asserting that even though you do good things, if you've got fear or self-loathing in your consciousness, the universe is going to keep giving that back to you. So the problem is something that you're doing in your subconscious. That's not the answer. The problem is not that you don't have enough faith. As our prosperity preachers would tell us, if you're not healthy and wealthy, then you simply haven't planted that seed of faith enough. You haven't believed enough. None of those things are the problem. The problem is your object of worship. The fundamental problem is that our object of worship is misplaced either in ourselves or in things. When we claim to be worshipers of God, but get angry when it seems like there's no payoff, we reveal that it is not God we worship, but the prosperity we believe he owes us. Because all of us, at some level or another, are working on a merit system with God. I will do this for you, and I expect you to do this for me. That's the deal. God wants us to see him as the most worthy object of worship and value Him above all else. And that's why I say in your take home truth that you can see in the outline that you should have received in your program, righteous living is worth it because God is worthy of worship. I'll say that again, righteous living is worth it because God is worthy of worship. So, when the psalmist Asaph has this clarifying moment where his vision is cleared and he's able to see God for who he really is, and he has his idolatry exposed, what is it about God that he sees that changes his perspective? What is it about the character and nature of God that gets his eyes off the prosperity of the wicked, off the envy of them, and back where it belongs? Worship, his worship, worshiping where it belongs. We want us to see three things. The first one is this. God is just. God is just. Look at verses, the end of verse 17 through verse 20. He says, Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And then verse 27, he says, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. He sees this picture of the wicked, glibly asking, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? But then he understands that he is worshiping a God who is just and equitable and fair. And he's looking at too narrow a snapshot of the lies of the wicked. God is just. Evil will not go unpunished. And their their end is described as being on slippery ground, cast down to ruin, suddenly destroyed, swept away by terrors. Verse 20 puts it very vividly, doesn't it? He says, The fate of the wicked is like a dream when one awakes. We've all read or seen stories, uh, read stories like Alice in Wonderland, or you've at least seen the movie. And what happens at the end of Alice in Wonderland? Alice wakes up. It was was all a dream. The Cheshire Cat, the Queen of Hearts, the Mad Hatter, as real as they seemed, vanish as quickly and easily as Alice opens her eyes. And all of us have experienced the most vivid dream. And you dream that dream all night, and it seems so real. But when you wake up, the cobwebs clear from your mind, gone and god says that's what the wicked are like when god's justice comes down the lifestyle and the arrogance of the wicked will vanish their success is an illusion it's a vapor it's a dream they will be brushed aside and all their boasting about god not noticing their actions will sound about as credible as the talk of the mad hatter You and I must be reminded this morning that there is no piece of this universe that is outside of the jurisdiction of God's justice. And Christianity gives us categories that allow us to celebrate justice without hating the wicked. We can follow the lead of God as we see in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23 when he says this, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Christians can at the same time rejoice in God's justice because it will vindicate what is true and right and fair, but also hope that the wicked will return from their evil ways, that they will find forgiveness as we have found it in a just God, Who forgives? The problem that you and I face when it comes to wondering where God's justice is is that we want to ascend to the bench and take the gavel from God. We want to look out of the courtroom of the offenders. We want to raise the gavel. gavel. We want to hear the satisfying crack of the gavel on the bench as we mete out the judgment that we think people deserve. Yet we must understand that that is not our place. We say, he does all this to me and he gets the house. She does all that to me and she gets the kids. It's easy for us to look around and see that we're living in a crazy world and our our hearts cry out for justice. And yet those cries for justice just seem to echo back. Friends, we must remember that, like Alice, we will wake up from this as if it was a dream. We will not regard faithfulness to God as futility when we are confident that God and only God is worthy of our worship because He is just, because He is right, because He is fair. We will relinquish the gavel. We will renounce our cynicism. We will renew our faithfulness to God when we remember this truth, This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that, oh, the wrong seems oft so strong, and it does. God is the ruler yet. Are you here this morning struggling with the prosperity of someone who has wronged you? Don't let that struggle turn your heart to bitterness. Because that bitterness will blind you to the glory of God. And He wants you to see Him in that. He wants you to have Him in that. He wants to give Himself to you in that. He wants you to see that He is a just God in that situation. A second reason that God is worthy of our worship is that He is present. So, God is first of all just, but He is secondly present. Let's read verses 23 and 24 and 28 again. Verse 23 Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you take me into glory. Then at verse 28, he says But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. When it seems like we, as followers of Jesus, are getting beaten down by life, we are sometimes tempted to think that God has abandoned us. That God, for some reason, went into heaven's break room, and here we are, out on the floor of the warehouse, while he's gone, taking a break. We think that he is nowhere to be found. But God wants you to know this morning... God wants us to know that he is worthy of our worship and worthy of our trust and therefore worthy of our pursuing him and pursuing his ways because he is a God who does not leave us. The existence of wrong that is, a, that is tolerated does not imply the absence of God. We often want to draw a straight line correlating the injustices we see over here to the absence of God over here. And the Bible is correcting our thinking on that this morning by telling us that we have a God who does not leave us and who does not forsake us. The psalmist is drawn to the majesty of God and is brought to see a fresh God's worth when he takes his eyes off his circumstances and the people around him and sees that God is near to him. Let's just look at a few of the ways that the psalm describes the presence of God. The first one is this, God is with us. Now don't laugh, okay? I just talked about describing the presence of God and then I defined it by saying that God is with us. But I'm going somewhere with this. It says in verse 23, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Most of us have the general understanding of the nature of God and that the nature of God is this. God can be everywhere present in his universe at the same time. So God is with us. But This verse implies so much more than God's omnipresence. It's speaking to the fact that God is with us, that God is with you in a personal way, that God is for you, that he's there for you in the way that a father holds the hand of his child. I can stand at the edge of a busy intersection and I can watch one of my young children try to navigate their way across that busy intersection and one could make the argument that I am here. I am present but I'm standing on the, because I'm standing on the corner. I'm watching the child cross the street. Or I can take my child by the hand and I can carefully walk them through the intersection, helping them navigate the danger, and that's a sense in which I'm really with my child. I'm not just present, I am with them, I'm guiding them, I'm helping them, I'm leading them through. And in that way, God wants you to know this morning that he is with you, like a loving father taking his child by the hand. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 says this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's interesting that that, the promise of God's presence Never to leave, never to forsake, is paired with keeping yourselves free from the love of money. Because oftentimes we're looking at the prosperity of the wicked. And the reason we're looking at, pr- at the prosperity of the wicked and the reason we're envying them is because money can buy safety and security, can't it? No, it can't. But we think it does. But what's really going to buy your safety and security is not cash. It's God. God is with us. Secondly, God guides us. The Bible says in the first part of verse 24a, you guide me with your counsel. When we are left with ourselves as our only reference point, we might be tempted to conclude that crime does indeed pay and that cheaters do prosper. We might be tempted to abandon faithfulness to God in favor of our wants and our whims. Yet it is the counsel of God as he reveals himself to us that warns us not to be short-sighted. God's giving you counsel this morning. God is giving you counsel through the preached word reminding you that what you see is not all that is. And that even though you cannot see God's presence with you, it is nonetheless there in a very real way. Thirdly, we can see about God's presence, that God directs us. God directs us. God is with us in a way that's going to lead us to our final destination. The latter part of verse 24 says, And afterward you will take me into glory. The final destination of the wicked and the final destination of the, of the righteous are two very different stops of the train. The final destination of the righteous is Glory the glory that you can only get a glimpse of on earth, the glory that you've only tasted a bit of right now, you will have in full. And God is promising you when you look around and it seems like the world is full of injustice and and, 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 and inequity and a, a lack of fairness, follow me, trust me, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm guiding you and I'm going to see to it that all of my children... I'm going to see to it that the righteous safely make it to their destination. And boy, you can't believe the destination. That's what God is telling us. He's directing us and guiding us. The fourth thing I want us to see about God's presence is that God's presence protects us. In verse 28 it says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge the scriptures and particularly the Psalms abound with references to the fact that God is a shelter in storm that God is a refuge that God is a strong tower but note that God's presence as a refuge implies that there will be people and things that we will need to seek refuge from in other words God's presence does not guarantee a life that skips injustice. God's presence with you does not mean that you get to fast forward the DVR past the bad parts. God's presence doesn't mean that. God's presence is a refuge through that. And if I could illustrate it this way... I read a story earlier this year, I think it was in May, about a family in Australia. And this family in Australia lived in the Australian state of Tasmania, which is actually an island off the coast of Australia. And they lived in a pretty remote little town or village, whatever you want to call it. And these are people who are accustomed to doing things for themselves, living off the land, they're tough people. There were brush fires that happened during the dry season every year. And the people are normally equipped to handle those kinds of things. And people are, are used to digging ditches around their property or setting up fire breaks that will protect them from the brush fires that sweep through. And there was a man named Tim Holmes. Tim and Tammy Holmes, they were, they were at home with their five grandchildren, probably all of them under the age of 10. And the brush fires were, seeping, were, were, were sweeping through the area. And they thought that they were going to combat the brush fires like they normally do. He had even 10,000 gallons of water stored that he could spray on the blaze to keep his house wet and to keep it from uh, combusting through the blaze. But this brush fire wasn't like other brush fires. This brush fire was like, the only way that the people have been able to describe it is like a tornado of fire. It was sweeping through and catching fires and possessions and forests on fire before the fire could actually even reach them because the fires were were burning so hot. The Holmes family realized that they weren't going to be able to save their house this time. But they also realized that they were trapped. And so they made their way to the lake, which is at the edge of their property, and watched the fire come in. As the fire came in, they got hotter and hotter and hotter and realized that they were going to have to go what they call a jetty, but it's a a long narrow dock that goes out into the water. They realized that they're going to have to go farther and farther and farther out from the dock to escape the blaze. And eventually, they found themselves because of the air quality and the heat, they their whole family actually had to get down into the water. And I've got a picture of it that you can see there. Uh, on the screen. This is a, a picture that went viral after they took it, but as you can see, the, the blaze behind them. And they tried to keep their, their noses just above the surface of the water so that they could have clean air. And the grandfather tried to use his hat to keep the dock wet on the top because it kept catching fire. Now, the story ends happily. This family, you can look them up later uh, if you want. They all were okay. All five of those beautiful grandchildren and, the, and the, their grandparents were okay. But they lost everything. They watched their house burn to the ground. They watched every possession burn to the ground. All their memories, photos, jewelry, possessions, gone. The Holmes family didn't escape the fire completely, did they? They lost everything but the shirts that were on their back. But the Holmes family found refuge from the fire. And I wanted to give you this picture of them finding refuge because that's exactly what God does in our lives. He doesn't fast forward things. He doesn't make us skip the fires. We do go through them, but we've got a refuge in them. God doesn't promise that you get to skip it. But he promises that he's going to lead you through it. And he's going to lead you through to nothing short of glory. Here's how one person writing about this passage put it so eloquently. The psalmist's understanding of how God has good has changed. Divine goodness is not prosperity but presence. Divine goodness, truly, truly having good doesn't mean necessarily prosperity in your life. But God is going to give you something more than prosperity. He's going to give you himself. He's going to give you his presence. So we've seen that God is worthy of worship. He's worthy of our righteous lives. Because he is just, because he is present, and finally I want us to see that it's because God is enough. God is enough. Look at what the text says. Whom have I in heaven but you? In verses 25 and 26. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, what he's realizing is without God, he actually has nothing. Nothing. Whether it be heaven or earth, designating the totality of all it is, there is no greater desire and no greater good that we can have than God. My flesh and my heart may fail. You are eventually going to die. Your heart is going to give out on you. It's not going to work anymore. What is going to help you when your flesh and your heart fails? It isn't prosperity. It isn't comfort. It isn't ease. What's going to help you when your heart fails, what's going to give you confidence, is that you have God, but more importantly, God has you. And God is enough. The psalmist says that God is my portion. And portion carries the idea of one's reward, one's inheritance, one's share, something that has been designated or allotted to someone. So the psalmist is saying, I'm happy with what I've got. I'm happy with you. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 5 says this, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 24 says this, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. And too often we are saying, we are taking Lord out of that and we are envying the prosperity of others and we're saying, filling in the blank, that relationship or that thing or that job, that's my portion. Take that out and let the Lord be your portion. That's why reorienting one's object of worship reorients one's perspective. We're all trying to be satisfied this morning. The question is, in what are we truly being satisfied? Is it in the gifts? Or is it in the giver? Are we good with God as long as he gives us what we think we must have or the things that we want? Do we perhaps have an unconscious pattern of thinking that thinks that God needs to reward me in the way that I specify? Because I've been trying so hard? Does faithfulness faithfulness buy a say in how God deals with your life? The Bible tells us that only God himself can ultimately satisfy us. God is enough. And so Psalm 17 and verse 15 says, As for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Or Psalm 90 in verse 14 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. God loves you too much to allow you to go on in confusion thinking that that thing that you want is really going to satisfy you. He loves you too much to let you do that. And here's how we need to think about it. When God is taking something from you, he's actually setting you free. When God is taking something from you, he's actually setting you free. Because he doesn't take something from you and give you nothing in return. He gives you himself. Because he knows that that's what you were created for. He knows that you were created to be satisfied, but he knows that only God can satisfy you. And so it is a gracious thing for him to do to, 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 to tear your fingers off earthly things, even though it hurts. It's a gracious thing for him to do because he wants to give us something that's so much better in return. And so we find these kinds of encouragements in the scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Or Galatians 6 and verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And that's, what, that's the answer to what the psalmist is expressing, isn't it? Surely in vain... I've kept my heart pure. Surely in vain I've kept my nose clean. And God is encouraging us that we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It's once been said that God is the gospel. That the, that the good news that you and I must cling to is, is not the fact of what God can do for us, but that a gracious God sent his son to die so that the wicked who deserve the punishments that we've talked about can be redeemed. You see, the wicked isn't just a category of people outside of us. The wicked is us. We deserve to be swept away. We deserve to be on on slippery footing. And yet God has shown us grace in Christ. And so if you are a believer and you are here this morning, your, the answer for you is to turn your hearts and affections back to the God of the gospel. He has shown you so much graciousness in Christ. He has given you the greatest gift he could possibly give you in giving you his son. So how can we envy the prosperity of the wicked when the one who has was not afraid to spare his own son for us will also with him graciously give us all things we must go back to the gospel and find our ultimate goodness in god and if you are here this morning the answer is the same for you as it is for believers the answer is the gospel but you must be converted you must believe the gospel for the first time what does that look like What does it look like to believe the gospel? It means that we repent. We repent of our sins. We agree with God that we are sinners. We recognize that Jesus died for our sins. It was our sins that put him on the cross. We repent of those sins, and by faith we receive Jesus Christ into our lives. If you have envied the prosperity of the wicked this morning, God is with you. God is near you. God is just, and he wants to give you himself. Let's pray. Reorient us this morning to worship you. I am so prone to worship other things. I am so prone to love other things. I am so prone to assign value to that which is not truly important. But I pray that you would help us to see your love for us this morning. I pray that we would be drawn to worship, that our, that our, that our envy would dissolve when we see the greatness of the God whom we serve. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.